0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries with its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures affiliated monitors respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com.
1: Here are some of the things that Tom and I will speak about this week. What can we learn from FIFA's ongoing corruption scandals? We take a closer look at FCPA related securities litigation. What is the new DOJ evaluation of corporate compliance program? How much does steak and lobster dinner really cost you? What does it take to be a great board of director? How should you evaluate ESG factors? The SEC says seven years was not enough time to evaluate a whistleblower information. We have another DPA gone south in the United Kingdom. And Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, takes a look at thoughts running through his head while watching a safety video on his airplane flight.
0: This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, together with Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 163 for the week ending, July 19th, 2019, the new antitrust compliance guidance edition. Jay, we had a major announcement from the Department of Justice this week and uh, several other stories. So you just want to jump right into it?
1: Let's go for it, man.
0: All right. So, Jay, our first story comes from a one of our favorite, contributors on a variety of blog sites. It's Vera Sharapanova, and she is a compliance practitioner in the EU and writes some really interesting stuff. And uh, this most recent uh, pinning by Vera is entitled, What Organizations Can Learn from FIFA's Bribery and Corruption Scandals? And it appears in NAVEX Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters. And she says there are three steps uh, that uh, every organization should face uh, for uh, uh, a bribery scandal, that's self-report, cooperate with the authorities and acknowledge uh, the mistakes that you have made. And unfortunately, uh, in looking at FIFA, you have to uh, kind of do the reverse of that because they didn't do any of those things. So um, uh, but uh, I thought her points were very well taken and uh, I think I sensed a little frustration. From the uh, the real lack of oversight uh, by agencies like the Department of Justice and the SEC over uh, FIFA, and she, in fact, she went so far as to say a researcher at the University of Colorado said that FIFA falls into the nether world of governance. So, in addition to purloined and uh, <clears throat> other favorite phrases, I may have to incorporate that into my repertoire of the nether world of governance. So. <laughs>
1: So uh, next up, we have something that comes to us. Uh, second week in a row, we're picking up something from Kevin LaCroix and his always excellent uh, DNO diary. And uh, this week, you took a closer look at FCPA-related security suits. And uh, if you're a follower of FCPA like we are, uh, you can pretty much bet that anytime a company has made an announcement uh, that it is under investigation or it's deserving some money, Uh, there can be pretty surely uh, derivative suits to follow behind it. And Kevin takes a look at the three places where people or companies uh, have to face um, a potential uh, suit. And the first one is that plaintiffs tend to try fraud claims around a company's statements about its compliance with the law or its ethical guidelines. The second place where plaintiffs try to sue is asserting FCPA follow-on claims that they also tend to rely on the company's statements about the effectiveness of their internal controls. And number three, plaintiffs may seek to allege misrepresentations based on the defendant's company's failure to disclose FCPA-related risks. He takes a look at Semex, uh, which was a, um, a building construction company, multinational, and takes a look at how the uh, suit fared on those three things. And then he also took a look at saying that the odds of these suits actually panning out are pretty low, but when you get to a company like Petrobras, they settled their derivative suits for over $3 billion. So a couple of points that he closes with is that um, as suits against Semex and Petrobras demonstrate, many of these lawsuits involve companies based outside of the U.S. And the other thing worth pointing out is that FCPA-related lawsuits and these cases are yet another example of the kind of event-driven litigation that has come to become a significant part in securities filing. So it's a, it's a great piece that he wrote, and we uh, link to it in the show notes. Uh, next up, Tom, why don't you dive into the uh, new antitrust policies and uh, let us know what Mike Volkoff thinks about them.
0: So, uh, Jay, uh, a major announcement by the uh, Antitrust Division in the Department of Justice late last week, uh, inaugurating for the first time a compliance program defense, or or, uh, if not a defense, certainly something that the department would take into consideration. Previously, the leniency program, which has been around for, I think, 27 years, uh, held that the first bad actor who came in and fessed up, Admitted everything and cooperated, we get a free pass. Uh, <clears throat> that was great if you were the first, but it really didn't help you if you weren't. So here, uh, I think this is really good news for uh, companies and those practice in this area, which includes uh, our good colleague, Mister Volkoff, and he's taking a kind of a deep dive into this. Um, uh, and he looks at in a two part series. He says that the Antitrust Division has embraced the four prongs of corporate citizenship in the uh, Justice Department's Manual of Federal Prosecutions of Business Organizations, including compliance programs, self-reporting, cooperation, and then, of course, remedial actions. And then he uh, went on uh, to also talk about some of the key developments that he thought were raised. And uh, this is where I think, Jay, you and I are are really going to have to start talking to compliance practitioners because uh, one of the things that your colleague Jesse Kaplan emphasized to me when I interviewed him on this for an upcoming podcast was that compliance practitioners are comfortable with looking at and assessing anti-corruption compliance programs. And that, when they say they have a compliance program, that's typically what they mean. And corporations will say that as well. Senior executives understand compliance. At least they understand the need for compliance. And uh, so, but what the Department of Justice Antitrust Division has really focused on antitrust compliance. And that's a little bit different animal. Uh, so is your compliance program tailored to and designed and comprehensive around antitrust uh, legal issues? Is there a culture of antitrust compliance? Who's responsible for your antitrust compliance program? Is it going to be the chief compliance officer? Uh, antitrust uh, practitioners uh As you might guess by the word practitioners, tend to be lawyers. And so, is this going to move compliance into the legal function or will you have to have a lawyer overseeing this? Uh, Doesn't mean you can't, uh, does not mean you have to have a lawyer, but typically that's what's been done in the past. A uh, antitrust risk assessment, training and communications around antitrust, periodic review and monitoring, once again around antitrust, and then incentives and discipline all around your antitrust behavior. So this is going to be something that compliance practitioners really need to be cognizant of. That it's um, very focused on one narrow area of the law. And uh, you may have to learn a whole new area of the law. I have some general familiarity with it, but uh, I'm certainly no expert in this. But uh, really interesting, Jay. And now we've had a triumvirate of uh, information from three different governmental sources on best practices compliance programs. Of course, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, 2019 guidance issued by the Department of Justice um, criminal section. We had the OFAC uh, compliance program framework, and now we have the antitrust divisions, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, and criminal antitrust investigations. So it's going to be interesting to see. um, Clearly, the DOJ uh, is putting a much more emphasis on compliance, cooperation, self-disclosure, I think that it would be a very uh, logical step to say oversight and monitoring, proactive monitoring, all of the things that we've been talking about uh, as part of a best practices compliance program for quite some time.
1: Indeed. So uh, next up, we have something from another one of our weekly contributors, Jonathan Rush's Dipping Through the Geometries, and this one's an amusing uh, story, kind of. It made me smile. Uh, It's called the lobster quadrille, European edition. And in the world of crustaceans, lobsters are neither the fastest nor the most powerful in terms of claw strength. But in the human world, recent events suggest that lobsters sometimes have the power to influence national governments. Let me give you a couple examples. On July 9th, the Jerusalem Post reported that after a recent lunch between Brazilian president Jair Bolsonaro and Israeli Ambassador Yossi Shelley, the Israeli embassy in Brazil released the photo of the two men at lunch, but used a black X over the place to conceal that the fact that the two men had been eating non-kosher lobster. The failed attempt at concealment made headlines both in Brazil and Israel, and the other day the New York Times reported that the French government minister Francois de Rugy was forced to resign. After the reports in 2017 and 18 that while serving as president of the National Assembly had hosted a number of lavish dinners at taxpayers' expense, those dinners reportedly featured lobster tails. So we can see uh, what's really now being referred to as Lobstergate. And Jonathan uses some other examples recently in Austria, Bulgaria and Croatia, again, where European parliamentarians are giving the appearance of wrongdoing. So as each of these situations describe above and demonstrate, ethical wrongdoing by the government officials, even if it falls short of violations, fosters public distrust of the government. Unlike the ro- lobsters in Alice in Wonderland's lobster, Quadrille, who risked only being thrown out to sea, national leaders who failed to hold the government's officials accountable for significant ethical misconduct may inadvertently be undermining the political ability of their countries. Uh, next up, Tom, we have uh, Henry Wolfe coming to us from Corporate Compliance Insights, and he asked the question, what does it take to make a great board of directors?
0: So Henry Wolfe is a really interesting fellow, Jay. I had the opportunity to interview him for a podcast. Um, first of all, fellow Southerner, so we have to acknowledge that. But he really focuses on boards of directors, and he is one of the few people I know who is really talking and writing about in terms of thought leadership that corporations, public corporations, really need to refocus their efforts on boards of directors more along the lines of private equity boards. And he is really trying to to take the game up for boards of directors, uh, you know, you, you and I both talk about a lot of scandals over the past few years, and you can name the scandal. It doesn't really matter what it uh, what it was or who was involved, but the question is always, where was the board? And it may have been as blue-chip a board as you would want, but they may not have the had the ability to deal with the issue, even if it was presented to them. So he takes a look at some of the factors. He lists eight factors that he thinks are needed for uh, – to be a great corporate director, they include intent, drive, ownership mindset, knowledge of the business and its value drivers, courage to rock the boat, insistence on clarity of value drivers and related information flow, engagement, and then willingness to hold management accountable. And he says these, uh, generally he says these things are in more in the private equity world, but I find his commentary very interesting and uh there's lots of groups, uh, NACD and others, that really uh, talk about board professionalism and training, but uh, I think Henry is, like I said, really one of the leading commentators on, on this, so uh, interesting article, and i um, looking forward to what he comes up with next.
1: So next up, we have another article from Corporate Compliance Insights. It's by Todd Northman and Savannah Fox, no relation to Tom. And uh, the subject matter here is ESG environmental social governments. And the authors say that uh, companies often push aside investment and social factors in favor of profit, but environmental, social and governments, ESG initiatives have been shown to be intrinsically, rather to intrinsically promote sustainable earnings and facilitate long-term success. Uh, they' first of all, they go on to say that support for companies, who embed ESG factors in business-making decisions, began back in 2005. Uh, This began to go forward, and more and more companies by 2013 and 2014 warmed up to ESG after multiple studies showed that corporate sustainability produced good financial results. Uh, Finally, uh, according to the ESG case study, analyst of ESG Factors, provides an effective risk management structure, sheds new light on strategy development and growth opportunities, and addresses the demands of customers, employees, and investors. They adopted a framework, and three steps are, first, identify relevant stakeholders and factors, two, isolate and evaluate potential risks, and three, support companies as they invest their businesses to increase returns. So they go on to talk about the three steps and in their conclusion, they say the business case for ESG makes clear that the incorporation of these factors is more than a fad. It's necessary to create long term value, generate returns in industry and face significant environmental and social changes. And this kind of reminds me of the uh, ethosphere research that we see about the most ethical companies. So, again, if you're keeping your eye on doing something right. Not only does it tend to lead your business in the right direction, but you seem to get benefits of it as well.
0: So, Jay, next we have an article from Christine Broughton over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance uh, Journal. And I, I, I have to say I, I'm not sure what I feel after reading this. If I'm perplexed, if I'm disappointed, if I'm appalled, uh, if I'm just shaking my head for business as usual – or maybe all of the above, but it involves a Dodd-Frank whistleblower who provided information to the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's not clear when the information was provided, but it was around the FCPA settlement for Teva Pharmaceutical, and that case was settled in 2016. So obviously the information had to come before 2016. Um, the uh, It could have come as early as, uh, I think, 2011 or 2012. So... We have information that is quite old, or at least has been with the SEC quite some time. We have a case that's settled at least three years ago. That is part of the public record. And we had a whistleblower who's basically heard nothing from the SEC, and the whistleblower's lawyer filed a motion with the court asking if the SEC fish or cut bait, get off the duff and, and say something or do something. And I guess what's uh, troubling is really the response. The SEC says you know, it'll take time and we'll get to when we get to it. It said, there are six claimants who filed for awards in this case. And the sec is processing that information and a voluminous amount of other information. And that it has no idea when it'll get to it. Um, it says basically, Hey, this is a hard gig. And, um, we really don't know when we're going to get around to it. And, um, you know, certainly the whistleblower program has been a great success at the Securities and Exchange Commission. But if this whistleblower has been waiting seven, five years uh, and three years after the resolution, that really, I think, um, that sort of delay is not going to help the SEC going forward. And um, the fact that this case settled over three years ago, that would really seem to me to to call out or even scream out for a resolution um, one way or the other, whether it's difficult or not. Um, it, it would seem like that that one is high up in the queue to get done.
1: Uh, I can't remember the company, but I thought this week I read something that the SEC again was uh, bringing suit against a company and it took them three years after the company have settled. Do you know what I'm talking about, Tom? Did you read that this week?
0: Yeah, that's the Volkswagen uh, suit that the SEC brought, um, basically a fraud case against Volkswagen for uh, its floating of bonds and raising uh, capital, when uh, part of that was based on the fraudulent uh, emissions testing scandal. And uh, the suit was brought literally within the days before the five-year statute of limitations had run. So I think As as difficult as that may sound or seem, if you're within the statute, you're timely. But Volkswagen's argument was, you know, we settled this three years ago. Um, This is not new facts. This is part of the public record. We admitted to these facts. And if those admissions are going to form the bases of a claim, uh, that was available three years ago. And why are you waiting till literally the the last second to to file this? So – I don't know if uh, the Trump administration has whacked the appropriations, or uh, we saw that under the Bush administration with Christopher Cox, and perhaps that's uh, Jay Clayton's underhanded ploy to to gut the SEC. Um, but um, we have, you know, two very uh, certainly the Volkswagen case is very high high, prof- high profile, and within the, within the whistleblower community. Uh, this case is high profile, and certainly Teva Pharmaceutical is high profile—a foreign entity, the Israeli drug company, with a five hundred and nineteen million dollar settlement. One of the still in the top ten of FCPA settlements, and still in the top uh, ten of international anti-corruption settlements. And really, for the SEC to say, you know, this is just a difficult thing, and and we'll get to it when we get to it. I I just found that a, a disturbing and or disappointing response.
1: The dog ate my homework. So God, next, did that happen to you too? <laughs> so next up, oh. consider, uh continuing his strong uh, his strong debut out of the gate, Dylan Tokar writing again in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal uh, tells us about Sarclad's settlement is questioned following executives' acquittals. So unfortunately, uh, this brings the light back again to the SFO, the Serious Fraud Office, and Britain, United Kingdom. Uh, three former executives of a metalworking technology company were acquitted in London 3 years after the company reached a deferred, deferred prosecution agreement with the SFO. The former executives Michael Sorby, Adrian Lake and David Justice on Tuesday were found not guilty of conspiring to commit the crime. Their acquittal is expected to raise questions about Sarclad's deferred prosecution agreement. The SFO's process for negotiating deferred prosecution agreements runs contrary to a legal principle in the United, K- United Kingdom in which a company's criminal liability is based on the acts of its officers and directors. Deferred prosecution agreements allow prosecutors to suspend criminal charges against a company if it agrees to pay a fine. The SFO has been less successful in pursuing individuals. This we saw earlier this year in the Tesco ex- uh At the end of last year, when former Tesco executives were uh, acquitted and the SFO declined comment, Lisa Ozovsky, the director of the SFO, has defended the Tesco agreement, telling the BBC that it outlined the extent of criminal conduct for which the company accepted responsibility. So uh, this kind of uh, just chronicles the uh, trouble that the SFO seems to have uh, with the difference of the... um, DPAs that they try to enforce versus what's here, what's happening here in the U.S. So, uh, hopefully, uh, Lisa will be able to uh, get a break and and start getting some of these uh, prosecuted uh, in the same direction.
0: So, Jay, uh, you know, you and I pride ourselves on being all things compliance, and certainly that's a a large part of what what we do and who we are, but you may have to cede that hat now to, uh, to the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly.
1: The coolest guy in compliance, Matt the Kelly. The coolest
0: guy in compliance. Yes. Uh, if you're listening on headphones, hopefully we uh, blew you away with that stereo effect there. But, um, so Matt, uh, took a vacation out your way a couple of weeks ago and then flying out, he s- took the, of course, watch the uh, training video. He was on Delta. So it was a uh, animated video. And he started thinking about compliance training. And, uh, I thought some of his, uh, observations were really interesting about what's the purpose of training is training simply to teach someone a procedure or is it to more, uh, really inculcate corporate values or is it something completely different, which is, um, an ongoing dialogue and communication between your employees. Um, And so he and I did a podcast on this, and uh, we talked about some of the other safety videos or safety vignettes or safety announcements that planes and airlines make when they take off. Southwest Airlines does a live presentation, lots of humor, lots of audience participation, and I think a lot of people listen. Um, I fly United almost exclusively, and United has a rotating every month video and uh, United employees are in the video, and each employee illustrates a different point, and I find it to be uh, very well done. I always watch it. Uh, frankly, after 9-11, I pay a lot more attention to those things than I ever did, but um, I find the United uh, uh, safety videos are very engaging, and I've actually learned things I, I never knew. So uh, it's a very fresh take on some training issues and You know, kudos to Matt for for looking at something that uh, we all see uh, literally every time we fly and coming up with some fresh angles and, more importantly, uh, some significant questions for a compliance practitioner to consider around uh, their own training program.
1: So in the show notes, we link uh, both to Matt's blog and then to the Compliance and the Weeds episode that Tom just spoke about. We've got three events that we wanted to share with you upcoming. Um, next week in uh, Houston on Monday, my affiliated monitor's colleagues, Vin DeCiani, Eric Feldman, and Jesse Kaplan will be joining Tom as they present um, a roundtable with appetizers and beverages, and they're going to be discussing – uh the recent updates by the DOJ to the guidance. So, uh, Tom, uh, a- anything you want to add to that one? Sir
0: sure, Jay. It's Monday, July 22nd from 4.30 to 6 p.m. at Good Company Seafood. That's the Katy Freeway location, 10 to 11. Uh, it's no charge for the event. Uh, I've had ha- hosted several events there over the years, and the food is great. The setup's great. Um, I uh, hosted uh, Vin and Eric at a similar event in Boston, and it was extraordinarily well-received. Lots of great flowing of information back and forth between Vin and Eric, and here we'll be joined by Jesse and the audience. So uh, if you're in Houston and uh, you want to have some great uh, food and perhaps an adult beverage or two, and listen to three of the top compliance practitioners uh, talk about not only the, the 2019 guidance, but the Benchkowski memo and how they really unite together to provide significant information. Uh, this would be the, uh, the event for you. And I hope you can join us once again, it's at no cost. You can RSVP, uh, by emailing Jay simply, or you can email me and I can get it to Jay. Uh, or if you have any questions, of course, uh, we've got both of our, uh, uh, email addresses in the show notes. So, uh, if you're in Houston, uh, or you're just visiting in Houston. Check it out.
1: Uh, continuing the theme of the Benskowski memo, uh, Tom and I are going to be hosted by Conversant next week for one uh, for part one of a seminar series on DOJ guidance from the Benskowski memo to the 2019 guidance. This event takes place on next Thursday, July 25th, at 12 p.m. EDT. Uh, There is also a link in the show notes for you to sign up uh, with Conversant and to either watch it live or to get the opportunity to do a replay. And Tom, uh, why don't you share with our listeners what the uh, AMI uh, August podcast is going to be about?
0: Sure, Jay. Uh, I had the opportunity to sit down and visit with uh, uh, one of your newest colleagues, Jerry Coyne. And Jerry um, is a former uh, first deputy State Attorney General from the state of Rhode Island. He held that position through three separate administrations, which is, a, a I, I think, a pretty high compliment as uh, as to Jerry. But he talks about monitoring and uh, really the uh, growing uh, litigation involving states' attorneys general, where they're bringing a wide variety of more socially focused litigation. started with the tobacco litigation, but we've had opioid litigation, climate litigation, litigation. Um, a wide variety of, of anti-competitive and consumer litigation and how uh, the monitorship process and the monitorship structure is inherently suited for uh, this type of litigation. Because you have a large parties, number of parties, 50 states potentially, and usually have multiple defendants, so a large group with perhaps divergent interest or at least uh, not unified as one on either side. And so a monitor can really help. And and it's a really interesting exploration of the development of state's attorney general litigation. And Jerry was literally at the forefront of this uh, in his tenure at the Rhode Island uh, attorney general's office. So it's lots of great information. uh, And uh, I think it's something that every compliance practitioner needs to be aware of. And it may be something that I think we're going to see a lot more of, Jay.
1: Great. So that kind of wraps everything up for the week. Um, We'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 163, for the week ending July 19th, 2019, the new antitrust compliance guidance edition. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, we'll speak to you next week.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. Jay and I certainly had a great time bringing it to you. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jayrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox@tfoxlaw.com. at tfoxlaw.com. If you're in Houston on Monday, July 22nd, I would urge you to check in with myself and the Affiliated Monitor gang at Good Company Seafood. We've linked to it in the show notes. A simple reservation to Jay or myself will suffice. There's no charge for this great event. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week.